we all take on debts, right? You can't grow without taking debts. You can't really have a successful life without taking on debt. But we track them in our personal life. We don't track them in a startup. What's up, Powder Keg fans? This is episode 79 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in areas outside of Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and today we'll be talking about how to identify and manage hidden debt, or as our guests would say, debtbergs. What? Okay, debtbergs? Let me explain this. Startup failure is nearly always the result of a series of errors that probably weren't all that obvious. Problems that lurked far beneath the surface, like an iceberg. We'll talk to you about how you can identify these problems or debtbergs that, if not taken care of, can sink your startup faster than the Titanic. And today, we're going to talk about the very important risks and pitfalls of all entrepreneurs and people working at startups. This is such an important topic, and it doesn't get covered enough because it is the number one thing that if you're aware of it, you can avoid it, which means you actually have a chance of succeeding. And we're going to talk a little bit about the importance of anticipating these problems, and more importantly, how to do that, how to look for and manage this hidden debt in different parts of your business, and how to test the waters in a new market through good market research. And we've got just the guests to do that. Our first guest is a serial entrepreneur who built and bootstrapped his company, Interact, which he sold to 21st Century Telecom. He is also one of the founders of Developer Town, a national venture development firm that has worked with dozens of startups and large enterprise companies. He's one of my first mentors and is a good friend, Mr. Michael Cloran. Our other two guests are also longtime mentors of mine and are an awesomely dynamic duo. First up is a strategy and entrepreneurship professor at the IU Kelly School of Business. He also works with Kelly Direct, which is one of the best online MBA programs in the world. And he's an angel investor in several startups, amongst many other ways he's engaged in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. That's Todd Saxton. And finally, this person is also a professor at IU's Kelly School of Business, where she teaches marketing. She's also a marketing researcher that studies startups and entrepreneurs to find out what makes them successful. As well as angel investing and a self-described reluctant entrepreneur, that is Kim Saxton. All right, so you know who's on this thing. It is a great conversation and an important one for anyone working at a startup. Let's kick this thing off. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, Really excited to get some of these stories. Uh, And Corin, you have many of them. And uh, you've seen a lot of failures along the way, helping lots of startups, uh, experiencing some of your own. Can you maybe give a little bit of your backstory of, of how you came to be what you to do what you're doing today? Uh, sure. I uh, basically st- have been through a lot of startups. I started with uh, trying to build ground school for 747 pilots. It's the first time I had a chance to have equity in a startup and went bankrupt seven months in. And I tried to do a kid safe internet thing that turned pivoted into an internet service company that worked out successfully. Tried to buy a children's software company that. Uh, was my first real exposure to technical debt. It was $30 million development that I bought for half a million dollars. It turned out to be a really bad investment because of how much debt, clearly the debt exceeded the $30 million of work that had been put into the code. And then uh, started a, a, the biggest company, Interactions, which uh, I basically really learned the lessons of technical debt there. Along the way, that company 
I raised thirty-two million for it. Uh, turned out that after I left, after seven years, it needed another hundred plus million more of capital, and uh, hopefully it could do well. And then that all led to the founding of Developer Town, where in two thousand and ten we started Developer Town and uh, started trying to help companies, uh, particularly startup companies and large companies, build. Uh, software without this technical debt that makes it so hard to react to the market and pivot down the road as you start learning things along the way. And along the way, you met our other two guests uh, here today. Do you remember your first meeting of Kim and Todd Saxton? Wow. I don't know. (laughs) I do remember you made me do some kind of awkward video thing upstairs up here, but when would we first meet? My recollection was at a Venture Club meeting, and you were just new to town, and I think you were plugging Hey Otto. And you were up pitching Hey Otto, and you came from New Jersey, which is where I grew up, and uh, you finished pitching, and I was like, I got to know this guy. Uh, Just really interesting and entrepreneurial, and I do a lot of things uh, matching my students who have entrepreneurial interests with the venture community and seem like a good guy to connect with. And Todd, can you maybe give a little bit more context to your, your background? Sure. So uh, currently a professor at the Kelly School, teach strategy and entrepreneurship across most of our non-traditional programs, so our evening MBA for working professionals, uh, business and medicine program for physicians, uh, and then our Kelly Direct, which is one of the top-ranked online MBA programs in the world. Yes, thank you very much. Um, so I work <laughs> also with one of the Powderkeg partners. Yes, exactly, absolutely, and uh, you know a place where these guys both got training. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, so worked with a number of entrepreneurs and helped start a couple companies. And Kim and I are co-investors in, uh, from an angel investing standpoint, a lot of organizations. And, you know, unfortunately, we see some of the same mistakes repeated. And some of those we have made ourselves, uh, right? Or, or could, you, could you maybe uh, share one memorable one that has oh, shaped sure. your career? So very first company, I'm going to leave the name unsaid. Uh, but it was a, a great concept, and the idea was uh, video interviewing. This was in the very early stages of Internet, and the idea was, you know, people waste all of this time bringing in recruits, and we can set up a kiosk, and they can do a record a video interview, and then maybe even over time make it interactive. Wouldn't that be cool? Um, didn't have a salesperson on the founding team. We had technical person, we had content knowledge, I was a strategy guy. You know, we had four co-founders, we were all enthusiastic, uh, and nobody knew how to sell. And absolutely nobody knew how to close. So that was my first lesson in the hidden human debt of not having a diverse team and not kind of checking all the boxes in terms of functional talent. And Todd, how did you meet our third guest, on the show today. Well, I was going to jump in, Matt, and say that the kiosk is still in the garage. (laughs) (laughs) And the only way I know that is because I'm married to him. (laughs) But I'm also a Kelly professor in the areas of marketing. And to your question, we met in our first jobs uh, 30-something years ago. This year, we will have been married for 31 years. Congratulations. That is a long time. Yeah, so that's either a great success or a horrible failure. We're not sure yet. <laughs> Lots of icebergs there. <laughs> so can you maybe give, give some context for uh, maybe some of the failures that you've seen along the way uh, in, in your own career? Yeah, 
Yeah, so I should probably step back a second and say that the, my two partners are really the, the enthusiastic entrepreneurs. I'm the reluctant entrepreneur. And one of the things that Todd and I do as academic researchers is we look at startups and entrepreneurship and people who are entrepreneurs and we try to understand what makes for success along all those dimensions. And one of the things that we discovered is that there seems to be this important issue about your tolerance for uncertainty. And through this research, we've learned that I have very low tolerance for uncertainty. Risk, I'm okay with. I'm happy to, you know, calculate the odds and bet on the things I think I could do well. But if I don't know what's going to happen, I get really nervous. And so I'm the one in our um, uh, our ventures who is always trying to look at and uh, understand well what don't we know <laughs> that could really hurt us. And so. Um, so I have seen a number of things. I probably haven't been as close to the failures, per se, as they have, except as the ob observer. Sure. Um, but um, where I have seen success is when people are willing to embrace getting other perspectives. So in contrast to the Todd's uh, first uh, founding team, we had a different founding team where we had people across a broad set of uh, backgrounds, marketing, tech, uh, managerial, uh, and even um, operational, and um, sometimes getting others who are not like you together at the beginning can be really powerful. Well, and it seems just looking at the room here, and of course you all have this awesome new book that I want to dive into, um, you each have your own diverse perspectives, and that really kind of brings a lot of these stories to life, and I, I think we'll make for some really good conversation as we continue to dive in here. You mentioned understanding and having some certainty. Uh, could you maybe paint the landscape for me a little bit of, of just the landscape of startups and the landscape of entrepreneurship? So the basic thesis of our, our book and the research we do, but also something that, that Michael sees uh, on a daily basis, uh, is that entrepreneurs are making decisions across a variety of categories of uncertainty, right? So uh, people think, you know, the, the essential task of the entrepreneur is to create a product or to find customers or to raise money. In reality, it's piece, pieces of all of those things. But an entrepreneur has to simultaneously navigate uncertainty across all of these different categories. Uh, and, and that is a, a fundamental challenge. Now, when you're navigating and making decisions in uncertain conditions, you have unintended consequences, right? So you have the decision you made and, and perhaps get some traction with that or, or perhaps not, but you also have baggage that goes along with that. And those unintended consequences are what uh, creates what we call hidden debts. Uh, and, and helping entrepreneurs better understand how the decisions they make may lead to some good traction, but also accumulate this additional baggage or, or these hidden debts uh, is really what we're, we're jointly enthusiastic about kind of bringing to light. I, I love I love the enthusiasm behind it because you don't always see a lot of the enthusiasm behind uncovering uh, the debts and uncovering the failures and the stumbles along the way. Uh, but I'm a big believer in like that's where the real learning is. Uh, and if I can learn from other people's failures, that's a lot better than, than learning from my own. And that's not to say I'm going to completely avoid all of them. But, uh, it's or it's cheaper too. It's certainly <laughs> cheaper. Michael, you probably see hundreds, if not thousands of startups a year. Can you maybe give some context to sort of the, the failure rates that you see when, when talking to your sort of average cross-section of startup entrepreneur? You know, these guys that actually 
study the numbers and academics can probably give numbers that they could stand behind a little more. I think for me, when I see um, idea stage, people at a pitch and they haven't done much yet, the failure rate has got to be north of 95%. Often it's 50% that day in my office, like just <laughs> in an hour long conversation when you just suddenly can pull out, uh, you know, the seven other examples or the key piece they haven't thought of or something they don't know. Uh, so, you know, usually at the pitch stage, it's incredibly high. And then you move into the phase where someone has started to, to do work, right? And when they've, maybe they've uh, done a lot of sweat equity at night while they're in their day job and do that world and they've started to research the market and they've done enough research and, you know, but, but it still is probably your 85, 90% kind of failure rates. And then you finally get to the point where today, uh, one of the things that I'm very hopeful uh, as a you know legacy of this book is that by the time angel investors have got involved and have written checks, it's amazing that the failure rates are still before the next round are still probably at the 50% mark in many cases at angle round. And I think the reason for that is that there's many of these hidden debts that uh, if we can make entrepreneurs in the startup community aware of them, and I think we can take that failure rate and actually move the needle on it a little bit. And then once you get through there, like the stats are out there for once you have seed rounds, series A, series B, you guys know all those stats. Sure, absolutely. Well, and and I love that phrase, hidden debt. I think I first heard that phrase, or at least some variation of that phrase, from you, uh, probably over a decade ago at this point. And when talking about code debt and the hidden debt for code and software development, can you maybe explain that term a little bit more, just so so our listeners understand? Sure. So technical debt is is when you're building a code base, particularly in a world of a startup where you have a rapidly changing real world environment. Uh, you have a rapidly changing knowledge environment because you're learning more about the market as you go and you have all the pressures of the other uh, icebergs pressing on you of you know financial and human ocean and strategy ocean things pressing in. You end up trying to write a code base very, very quickly. And when you write a code base very quickly, it's very tempting to uh, code it very fast, take that shortcut because, hey, yeah, sure, we have to fix that later, but we have to get this demo by next Tuesday for XYZ client or for XYZ demo for, for a pitch. And the comparison that I like to make is to a, someone said, you know, that the startup idea is to have a place to meet. And so they want to do it quickly. So they throw down some gravel and build a little shed with some walls. And, but they're going agile, so let's get it up quick. And it is up quick, but then it's like, well, now I need a window. Great, cut in the wall, that's easy. I need a roof, okay. Throw some shingles on. And then they say, I want to add a place to park. Okay, we'll do a lean-to on the side. And add another room, another lean-to on the other side. And next thing you know, they finally reach the point of product market fit where they start seeing what the market wants and it's a whole second story and they got to build it. And now they show up and say, hey, I want to take this code base that this is this you know shed with a couple lean-tos on it and make it into a two-story code base. And the answer is it's cheaper to tear it down and start over because you'd have to you know jack it up, put down concrete, put more nails in every two by four and, and fix it up. And the key is that with, for very little, for 10 or 20% extra expense along the way, they could have had a structure that was ready or maybe with a little foresight and a little, you know, thought from some frame of reference from the, from the marketplace. With some foresight, they, you could have had a code base that would be ready to handle it. And it's very hard for people to understand why that's the case. Uh, but for those of you that aren't uh, deep technical buyers of it, it's the fact that as a code base gets bigger and bigger, uh, each change you make could come through and break everything that came before it. And there's a lot of strategies that have developed now, particularly in the last decade, as people become aware of technical debt, to try to minimize that technical debt while you're building so that uh, the changes you're making as you keep going forward 
don't have that sort of uh, compounding uh, you know, effect across the code base. A lot of different areas where you could find hidden debt. But before we move on from the technical uh, ocean of entrepreneurship, uh, what, what would be your number one tip for a startup entrepreneur or someone working at a startup to help avoid or mitigate or minimize technical debt? There's these uh, code quality tools that are out there today, and many of them now incorporate concepts of, of eliminating technical debt. So if you go to Code Climate, you can get Code Climate and run it on your on your code base. Now, your developer, of course, is going to not like this or resist it, or maybe he's going to build it automatically into the build script because he knows that's the surest way to get you to stop looking at it because it's automatically in the build script and no one looks at it. So my advice is two-part. One, use a code grading tool so that at least everyone has a focus on it and is aware of it. And then second, look at it. And it's amazing how many times a startup will do it a few times when we first introduce the concept. We come back three months later and they stop looking at it. And again, the code base is drifting off into a, a problem place. So that's probably my number one tip is at least have code grading. The second biggest one would be peer review. Developers fundamentally learn from peer reviewing each other's code, and that's a great thing. But the real thing is, is developers code differently when they know someone's going to look at it. So if 100% of code gets peer reviewed, it's written in a different way in the first place. That's some really good actionable advice. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Kim, you are one of the most knowledgeable marketing uh, mastermind strategists that I know. And I know that in the, the side of marketing, we, we talked a little bit about product just now and the technology, but marketing is so important, as Todd shared in his earlier uh, anecdote of not having the sales founder. You obviously have to be able to sell the product and market the product. Um, where are some of the areas that there is hidden debt in the marketing ocean of entrepreneurship? Yeah, so let me go back and throw a statistic at you since you asked. But according to uh, the National Association for Small Businesses, who does kind of a uh, analysis every year of people who have declared they have a small business, 50% of those fail within four years, too. Wow. Yeah. And a small percent of them are actually, the ones that are live are actually profitable. Yeah. And what we see is very similar in the startup world to what we see in the new product development world, which is traditionally where I would have come from, which is that the number one driver of success is the same. And that is that you meet an unmet customer's need, right? So this is always a problem, right? We start with, I see a problem I want to solve. But what we forget to do is go out and talk to other people and see if, in fact, they have the same problem or if our problem is unique. And that's what I think holds most startups back or ultimately comes to they can't find a market that's willing to pay the price that it would cost to get this service um, the way that it is trying to solve the best problem. Or the other thing you run into is that human behavior is pretty hard to change. Most of us have a routine that we're into. And so when something new comes onto the horizon, then we have to think, you know, should we change our behavior to adopt this thing? Well, if you don't understand what I need very well, you're probably not going to be able to get me to adopt it either. So customer research, the most hated words for every entrepreneur. You've got to go and you've got to talk to people. And I'm not talking about your mom, your dad, your neighbors. But like legitimately go and get research of people who are complete strangers to you and don't want to help you. They're going to tell you exactly what's going on. Do, do you have any uh, particular advice or anecdotes 
of how to go about doing that research. Because yeah. I, I know my tendency, because when I'm in love with an idea, I've got sales ears, right? I'm just looking for that person that's going to say yes, yes, yes. Whether it's conscious or subconscious, I'm going to go look for that person that looks like they're going to be agreeable and they're going to get excited about this idea with me. So you've already answered half the equation by saying, you know, people that aren't necessarily going to like you, people that aren't your mom, people that aren't your friend. But how about how do you ask that question? Yeah, it's a great um, question. And I sort of maybe didn't think clearly about how often I have been an entrepreneur myself. Um, Todd and I bought a business last year that we saw pitch at the Venture Club. And we tried to get it off the ground as an e-commerce business. And we shuttered it within nine months. And part of that was we went out and did research to understand um, how this product would or would not be accepted in the marketplace. And one of the things we discovered is that the Midwest was the worst place to have this business. There was the least interest for this business in the Midwest. The shame since we're sitting in the Midwest. And that um, the knowledge level of customers about this category was so low that one, even though we were like, discount or get it now or we're creating urgency or we were relating it to holidays and things that were going on, we got no buying action. And that's simply because people never heard of it before. And so the amount of work we would have to do to educate the market was way too high to get any kind of payoff. It was better to shutter it. And so that's another caution I have for people is often people say, oh, we are the only ones who do this. We have a unique product, a unique product category, which is what this business was. It was the only one. White space. White space. <laughs> well, okay, you're the only one educating people. You're the only one talking to people. It's way better to find uh, an existing product category where you do something better, you meet customer needs better, and then you show everyone how you're different. So much easier to market. I, I remember my second business that I ever started was an um, e-commerce business for non-toxic personal care products and cosmetics. Huge market. Sounds like a great idea today in 2019. Right. I started it in 2008 and completely ignored the search traffic. I did the research and found out that less than 1,000 people a month were searching for non-toxic Toothpaste, non-toxic deodorant. What? You mean personal hygiene products are toxic? I mean, I put those on my body. <laughs> exactly. I mean, a decade ago, that's exactly what people were saying, except for a crazy few. Now it's like general knowledge that, of course, yes, you should probably use Tom's toothpaste. You probably use Jason's deodorant. Um, but we were at least four years too early or undercapitalized, depending on how you look at it. And I just completely ignored the data. Right. So, and so you're not alone. Well, and one of the things that... It's uh, hard to be out front of the market by that much, <laughs> isn't it, man? It's very hard. <laughs> it was my business partner that was the trend spotter. I was just go along for the ride. Yeah. And, you know, those. if you can do trend spotting, the key is then timing it. But one of the things that um, we do from the Kelly School, and I know other universities do it too, is that we'll partner with companies and help them do some of their research. So the research I'm talking about cost us mm, maybe $1,000 to buy a sample, but you know we know how to do surveys. And you get a national sample, there's plenty between SurveyMonkey, Qualtrics, whatever. Um, just ask strangers the hard questions that you really want to know. That's great advice. Or just ask them for money. That also a good way to get advice and feedback really quick. <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit more about that, ask, asking them for money. Uh, well, one of the things we always tell people is, uh, well, the, the famous with investors is, you know, if you want uh, money, ask for advice. If you want advice, just ask for money because you get the advice right away. But specifically with customers, uh, 
even if they are strangers, no one wants to be the person that, uh, you know, poops on the entrepreneur's dreams and says, no, you shouldn't do that. So everyone gives great feedback until the moment you ask for some level of commitment, a pre-order, a non-binding letter of intent, uh, specifics. And suddenly the feedback just changes to like, oh, well, no, I know this product would be great for people, not me. I can't do it because of da, 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 da. And that's when all of a sudden it pops open. So it's really asking for money is actually the trick to get a lot of great feedback. I appreciate that piece of advice and uh, and for you to keep it PG here on the Powder Cake Podcast. Um, one other area that we were talking about just before we hit record, it was sort of the, the human area of of business. And, you know, you always, almost always go into business with other people. Eventually, you are at least hiring people. You're working with people or they're investors or customers. Um, and I know that there's a lot of hidden debt in that particular ocean of entrepreneurship uh, Todd, do you have any interesting uh, anecdotes maybe that you might be willing to share here on the show? Uh, well, uh, I'll get, I guess I'll talk more about maybe categories. Yeah. And, and I want to circle back to something Michael said and connect the dots a little bit. But he talked about Agile and uh, the role of that in development, which is, is really important. And as I'm sure you know and are a proponent of over the last 10 plus years, the idea of the lean startup and kind of an agile mentality and how you develop your venture. And one of the things that uh, troubles us about this, which is why Kim and I uh, kind of connected with Michael to, to do this book, is that every time you pivot or move away from an existing concept because of negative feedback or, or legitimate market feedback, uh, you are creating some of these hidden debts. And, and that happens in the marketing context. But it also happens in the context of who you kind of align yourself with. So as you said, you've got to have a founding team. Uh, and, and Michael uh, introduced us to the curse of thirdsies, right? You have three people sit around the table, Matt, Kim, and Todd. We say, hey, we're going to start a company. We should get a third. Woohoo! You know, let's go, uh, go to the bank. Um, but the reality is, as you move forward and as you start to pivot and change direction, not everybody's going to be fully on board. Uh, and if you haven't kind of vested equity over time, if you haven't thought about uh, how to structure the distribution of that equity, uh, you, you're inevitably going to have some major debt that you encounter. Uh, so one of the big categories that we talk about is, is founder debt, right? And the people who you start a company with, as I mentioned in my earlier anecdote, uh, sometimes that's not having the right talent around the table, so the right diversity of skills and experience. Uh, and sometimes that's uh, related to how you actually allocate the equity and, and when you allocate it. So uh, I'm sure you'll get around to like, what are some of the things to do to alleviate? The biggest thing I would say is first, never split a company 50-50. And second, always vest uh, the, the equity over time so that people are earning that equity as they're making a contribution as opposed to being given it up front. Any great stories that uh, you've come across along the way that maybe uh, didn't do that quite right? Well, so I'm going to turn to actually a different category within the human ocean, if you will, sure. is about investor and, and advisor debt. And there is a, an unnamed local startup that brought on some early investors and was getting, you know, woohoo, we got the big check, right? Here in well, here in Indianapolis, but attached to that check was a clause that that investor had to be bought out at a certain return in the next subsequent round of investors. Well, uh, as you can probably guess, not many investors are going to come behind an initial investment when a venture is trying to launch and grow uh, and be willing to spend their first two, three hundred thousand dollars just buying out the, the prior round of investors. So uh, the relationships that you have, the types of advisors and investors you bring on uh, and the nature of the relationships you have with them 
uh, can really help your venture. I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of trying to bring in outside investors and leverage their talent and experience. Uh, but at the same time, you want to be very careful that you don't incur some hidden debt that's going to end up sinking you. Yeah. Michael, I'm sure you've seen and heard some horror stories, maybe even unfortunately been a part of some of them. Uh, any favorites or maybe I should say least favorites uh, that you've seen along the way? Well, I mean, specifically, I would tell you the uh, I always threatened to write a book called Thirdsies is Evil. And I think that's where, uh, and it turns out it's called the Titanic effect, actually. And that's, uh, <laughs> and, and Todd did a much better job of, of, uh, you know, crystallizing that. But when it's three, which, or four, but three specifically, it's the whole triad math that happens, right? So I get all the time a founding team of two people, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry are there, and Tom and Dick are in my office, and they're nice guys, and they're cranking along, and they've made some progress over the last year of working on a startup, and, looks like they're getting product market fit. And I'm like, oh, well, how's your cap table looking? And they're like, well, yeah, it's just us. Well, except for, you know, Harry. And I'm like, who's Harry? And they're like, well, Harry's a, Harry's a butt. Cause I have to say PG for, uh, for the <laughs> you don't have podcast to, here. you don't have to keep so it. So I'm like, I'm like, so why did you go into business with an ass? And they're like, well, it all, you know, it always starts with the story. Well, we were all great friends and we were all at college. We had this idea and boom. And it's just like a, it's like a magnetic force that just blows apart the team because everybody wants, no one would say it out loud, but if you leave when the other two are fully committed, then you've got your lottery ticket. You don't have to get back your equity. You get to go off and do a job at Google or somewhere and, or vice versa. If you stay too long and you get stuck to where you burnt the bridges behind you, like you should as a good entrepreneur and you're in, then someone else can leave and let you let leave you there because you're stuck, you know, holding the bag. And it, I've seen that story at, at least five times a year for the last decade. It's unbelievable how often you see that story. Just remember that you first heard the Harry Butt Detberg here on the <laughs> podcast. There you go. So, uh, is the advice to avoid founding a team with two other people, or is there a way to do it and structure it properly? Oh, yeah, and I think Todd said that quickly. Uh, is that the trick is reverse vesting, uh, which basically says you can have the equity up front, efficient for tax purposes to do that, but you basically just say, hey, we're making this deal because we're all going to be here for four years together working on this. After four years, whatever happens, happens. But if I leave before then, then I'm going to have to give back some of my equity by default in advance, not to be discussed at the time, but in advance defined so that everyone knows they made the contribution. And I think Todd has some interesting techniques to do it even even a little more in reverse where you hold the equity in a pool and you basically give it out at each of those years occurs, but that can then run into some more difficulty on tax treatment and all that good stuff. So reverse vesting is a key trick. Uh, make sure if you're going to found it with some friends that you learn what it means and get it done right. So, uh, Kim, let's talk about strategy. I, I just mentioned you're one of the best marketing strategists I know. Um, there's a lot in the ocean of strategy in entrepreneurship. What are some of the biggest pitfalls you see people make when defining their startup strategy? Yeah, so when we think about strategy in the book, what we're really thinking about is really how do you cross the other disciplines? So Todd mentioned that you know a founder is really moving on multiple dimensions. So there's the product dimension, there's the um, customer dimension, there's the funding dimension, and then there's the employee dimension. So you're bringing those four pieces uh, to different stages. And what happens in the strategy side of things is that those four stages get kind of lopsided, right? So, um, and it's, and sometimes it has to be that way. So really early on, you know, it's like product, 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 develop, 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 develop. And then all of a sudden you have a product done. And you're like, 
uh, where are the customers? Right? <laughs> or now you got some customers and somebody needs to hold their hands, make them feel good. You're like, oh, where are the employees? Right? Or you product, 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 and then you run out of money. Right? And so the strategy uh, debtbergs are more about trying to stay balanced. And then the second piece of that is that also trying to measure where you are, right? And so what happens is we feel really good about where we are, da, 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 and someone says, um, so um, how many people have bought? Oh, customers is probably a really important metric, right? Of those customers, um, how many bought a second time? What, retention? We should have a metric on retention, right? And so got to get the metrics in place and have somebody own them. One of the things we definitely know is that people respect what you inspect. So if you don't have any metrics and you haven't made somebody accountable for them, then you aren't going to move on those four dimensions in a way that gives a startup its long-term success. Michael, what are some of the metrics that you see startups forget to measure most often? What don't they forget? You know, I'm uh, I my brain is fully aware of the need for metrics, but Every startup that I get into, it's amazing how in the crush you can forget to measure the basic things. I recently went and visited, you know, uh, Randy Stockman down at, at OneClick and and Scott Hill over at Perk, and you just watch those guys as just star entrepreneurs and how well they track metrics and the whiteboards that are just you know black tape lines on the whiteboard just filled with metric after metric, and it always humbles me. And I'm like, oh man, I've got to go back and find some black electrical tape and start laying out some lines on my whiteboard and and, and getting the, the tracking better. Um, I, I think the biggest things that we see in the early days of startups is certainly uh, analytics is a big scary beast and people have a lot of trouble figuring out how to, how to dive into analytics. Uh, in, in particular, uh, one of the, the biggest struggles out there is when you have a uh, multi-stage uh, sales process that unfolds over a period of time and trying to then do the actual cohort analysis in your analytics is so hard to do that often people are just kind of like, well, I think in this two weeks, this many people bought, but some of that was from marketing I did 45 days ago, and some was 15 days ago, and some was recent, and some was an instant purchase, some was a drip after a drip, and, and it's those metrics, and I guess I switched from what do they forget to track to the ones that are so hard to track that they just get ignored and kind of, and people just kind of guess at it as they go. So I think that's probably one of the biggest ones I see in terms of a flaw in analytics is that, um, delayed time scale tracking is so hard to do that just doesn't get done. Uh, at the same time, I, I've definitely seen startups that have like gone overboard mm. on the analytics and over-track things, and I'm seeing heads nod around the table here. Yes. Kim, can you maybe uh, give some context um, to marketers, like what are some of, or not just marketers, but entrepreneurs, Sure. what kinds of metrics should they, you mentioned customers, of course, right. but. Well, in the marketing realm, you know, what we do see is a lot of tracking of activity, right? It's so much fun. How many subscribers do we have? How many likes do we get? How many shares do we get? That's all great. And you want to see those numbers growing. And so they are leading indicators, but sometimes people just don't step back and do a basic conversion analysis of all the people we talk to. How many put money down? I mean, if it's 1%, that's one thing. If it's 10%, like, okay, that's amazing. So you're now in the cream of the crop. <laughs> but if it's 0.1%, you know, that's a real problem. So just even the basic, forget about over time. Let's just, you know, take uh, a, 
a month, a, you know, a year, whatever time period. And let's just know what percent of the people did we, that we talked to in any way, shape, or form actually bought is a really important metric. And then, particularly if you're a SaaS business, so um, software as a service or anything that requires an annual renewal, renewal rates are critical. I mean, a lot of companies, they price their contracts so you don't start making money until the second year. Well, if you have a 50% renewal rate, then you're going to be unprofitable, right? Yeah. And so that actually tells you where to focus. If you're not getting conversion, you either don't have the right target market at the top or you're not got a system to move people through the conversion. Maybe you need more content. Maybe you need different product features. If you're not getting people to renew, that's an entirely new problem. And you need to know where to focus to build up this company. Early on, these numbers are gonna be terrible, right? The goal is to figure out what's the process to improve the numbers and scale that so that I can get more people with fewer dollars spent. Um, and if you can't do that, you're not gonna be fundable. Well, so Matt, you asked about uh, how do you know that someone's over-focused on metrics? And to me, it's always round numbers or suspicious numbers. So when somebody says I had 62.5% growth Last month, it's like, oh, you had eight customers, you added five. Right, okay, good, right? You know, like, and, you know, if it's always 50% growth for the last three months, it's like, was that two to four to eight? Or, you know, so if the numbers always come out rounded like that, then you know the numbers are so small that they're probably over-focused on metrics. You shouldn't be measuring a number that small because it's not irrelevant statistically. Well, you mentioned uh, where to focus. And I, I think you know, after reading this book, I feel like in a lot of ways, this kind of gives you an idea of, of where to focus um, because it, it tells you where to check your blind spots. And I rediscovered a lot of my blind spots just going through this book. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, uh, a little bit of the story behind the name, The Titanic Effect. Do you mind giving a little context to it, Kim? Yeah, so I can only remember exactly when I met Michael, but um, it was, uh, Todd was involved in the entrepreneurship world and I was still in corporate marketing and I transitioned into being a professor. And I came along and I heard that talk about hidden debts. And I was like, oh my gosh, I see hidden debts all over the places I'm talking to these startups. And um, Todd and I were brainstorming one day and he goes, oh, you know, these hidden debts are like icebergs. I wonder if we could use the Titanic. And of course I said, well, as academics, we need to do some research and discover uh -huh. if there's anything there. And I started researching it and I discovered on the technical side, and we can talk about um, steel versus not steel rivets. Um, we can talk about hand uh, development of steel versus uh, using machines. Um, and then we started looking on the marketing side, and sure enough, they had three target segments that they were going after. Um, the luxury class was sold to Americans. This is a ship that's over in Europe. And the rest of the classes were sold here Europeans. Here today, I don't know how easy it would be to market to Americans and Europeans at the same time. Imagine doing this in 1912, right? <laughs> and then we started looking at the investment side, and it turns out that the White Star needed money. And when they needed money, they got an investor, and that investor caused them to move the shipyard from their traditional shipyard to Belfast, Ireland which dialed forward by buying, by trying to build three boats at the same time, they ran out of steel for the rivets. So what we noticed is that there were these interactive decisions. You know, you think, okay, I take the investment, That's an, that stands by itself. Well, it doesn't if it then relates to technical problems. 
Um, and we sort of saw that there were these interactions all over the place. So while a lot of people think that the iceberg sunk the Titanic and killed all those people, what we kind of discovered is that a variety of decisions came together to cause that catastrophe, not one single thing alone. It's all of those deaths combined, that, yep. that perfect storm that made it so that the Titanic couldn't pivot in time. Right. You know, well, they built the longest boat. The, so if you have a really long boat, it's really slow to turn. So what we tried to do at the end of the book, just to plug it a little bit, is we created what we call the Iceberg Index, which is a, a checklist in each of these areas. So you can see where am I today and where do I need to think about mitigating? We all take on debts, right? You can't grow without taking debts. You can't really have a successful life without taking on debt. But we track them in our personal life. We don't track them in a startup. Yeah, and I think that that index is a, a little sneak peek. Uh, one of the things we're working on is a tool to, we're going to ask a lot of founders uh, to come fill out this index, sometimes retrospectively after a startup maybe sank or even succeeded, or maybe uh, come in and do it as a live report going on. Because I think for me, it would be absolutely fascinating to sort of see how people self-rate, you know, in the world of financial debt, like Tim's talking, we track it, we have credit bureaus, we have scores, we know what things mean. I think it'd be fantastic if we could actually discover what things mean to startups. And I think that the potential for research there over time uh, to, to figure out which of these deaths are truly determinant of outcomes. So that's uh, a little sneak peek because it's under construction. It'll be a while before it's out, but it's going to be something fun to play with if we get it working. And so if people want to follow along, be a part of that study, or even buy a copy of the book, where do they? where should they go? Well, first, I would encourage them to go to www.titanicaffect.com. We've got a newsletter, a blog. Um, we're feeding these little tips out to you, so you might as well get them delivered to your mailbox uh, weekly, and plus, as new things come available, um, you'll be able to access them. The book is uh, available as an ebook now on nice. six online booksellers. And um, the print copies will be available in June of 2019. And um, in case you didn't know the history of the Titanic, and you know sometimes we like to do some clever marketing things, um, the ebook will be available uh, at least on Amazon from April 10th, which is when the Titanic set sail, through April 14th, which is when it sunk, for four dollars and ten cents. I love it. The, the whole concept of hidden debt is a, a really helpful paradigm, I think, for entrepreneurs to understand. And it helped me sort of unlock, you know, not just thinking about technical debt, but all of the different areas where you might have hidden debt and how those things interact. So thank you for sharing some of those stories and, and some of those pieces of advice. I certainly learned a few new things even after reading the book. So uh, thank you so much for sharing and look forward to having you back again soon. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Hey, this is your host, Matt Hunkler again, and I just wanted to say thanks for tuning in. I hope you walk away feeling inspired and armed with a lot of good insights and strategies for avoiding hidden debt. Make sure you follow all of our guests, which will be linked up in the show notes. You can check all of those out at powderkeg.com. And make sure you go check out the Titanic Effect book. I've got a copy right here with me right now. Uh, but you can get your own copy at titanicaffect.com and learn more about this book as well as some of the strategies in it for yourself. And to be among the first to hear stories like this about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com forward slash iTunes. We'll catch you next time on Powderkeg Igniting Startups. Powderkeg.